We believe in God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. Are those familiar words to you? If you were to recite the, the creeds, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, you would say that affirmation, that you do believe in God, the Holy Spirit. I became a Christian when I was 10 years old. I attended Sunday by Sunday, rather I was dragged Sunday by Sunday, to a local Sunday school in a Welsh chapel, a Welsh-speaking chapel, but fortunately for me, my brothers and sister and friends, the Sunday school was delivered in English, otherwise we would never get to heaven. But we went, and Sunday by Sunday, we, faith, we heard the gospel faithfully taught. And then one day we received a visit from a gentleman by the name of Richard who was working with the South Wales Evening Post. He just started with that company and he was an Englishman. We could tell by the way that he spoke. And so he was an object of curiosity immediately and he had our attention straight away. But looking back I've come to the conclusion he had our attention not because of his accent because of the fact that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And he told us stuff that we'd already heard. He told us the gospel. That God and his son Jesus Christ had come into the world to die on the cross. To pay the penalty for sin. For everyone's sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that when we say sorry to God, when we truly repent, we might be forgiven our sins and reconciled to God, our heavenly father. And as Richard spoke... I had a real sense of God's presence by the Holy Spirit. And I felt loved by God. Later I was to read the testimony of Charles Wesley, that great Anglican who lived and died an Anglican, and yet Methodists say they belong to him. Fair enough, we won't argue the toss. But he said this when he became a Christian, bearing in mind he'd been an ordained Anglican minister for ages, and then he became a Christian. And he described his conversion experience like this. My heart was strangely warmed. And of course he experienced the Holy Spirit embracing him and loving him and affirming him and saying to him, you are loved by God your heavenly Father. I experienced the Holy Spirit that afternoon in two ways. The first was to recognize, in retrospect that is, that Richard had a real gift for evangelism and it was a gift of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, I received a new birth and assurance of sins forgiven by the Holy Spirit. I experienced the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit because I've experienced the work of the Spirit in my life. Now, as Christians, we all believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe, well, no matter what our denomination is, whether we recite the creed Sunday by Sunday or not, as Christians, we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let me say this, we believe... In God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, 
not primarily because of our experience, as valuable and as precious as our experience of God through the Holy Spirit is. We believe in God the Holy Spirit, not primarily through subjective experience, but because of objective truth revealed in Scripture, God's written word, the Bible. It is the Bible that teaches us about the nature and the character of God. That he is a triune God. One God in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And that he is a missionary God who has, having created the world, has come into the world to redeem the world. And the world is redeemed by the will of the Father, by the atoning work of Jesus the Son and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now that said, as Christians, we know that we live lives in the Spirit. And we just read from um, Romans chapter 8 about living our lives in the Spirit. We know and we experience the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us every day. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the seal of our relationship with Jesus Christ and the mark of our discipleship. As disciples of Christ, we agree with John Stott. I'm, I would, it's a rather strange disciple of Christ who doesn't agree with John Stott. And John Stott has written this. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Holy Spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Holy Spirit is dead. Because the Holy Spirit is the very breath of God that brings life to our souls. So as Christians, because of what we read in Scripture and because of what we have experienced in our lives, we believe and trust in the Holy Spirit. But let's pause for a moment and address a question. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, we can say that the Holy Spirit is a person and not a power. The Holy Spirit is a real person whose work is to save and to sanctify us, to transform us into the likeness of Christ. The Holy Spirit is not a power which we control for our own benefit. The Holy Spirit is a person to whom we are called to submit. And this is a truth that was impressed on Simon the Magician. The Holy Spirit is a person and not a truth and to whom we submit and not a power that we control. This was a truth impressed on him by Peter and John. Simon was impressed by their, their miracles and uh, 
he came to Peter and he offered Peter and John money that they might impart to him the same power that they had, the miraculous power, so that he could do the same miracles. And Peter said to him, we read this in Acts chapter 8, Simon, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And he goes on and says to Simon, repent of this wickedness of yours. Simon thought that the Holy Spirit was a power that he could obtain and control for his own benefit. Peter made clear to him that the Holy Spirit is a person to whom he should submit. But he was a believer. Simon was a believer. And he was ignorant of the Holy Spirit. I want to suggest that this ignorance about the Holy Spirit prevails in the church even today. From time to time, I hear people saying, you need to get more of the Holy Spirit. How can I get more of the Holy Spirit? Such a mindset is non-biblical. I would say it's even pagan. How can I get more of the Holy Spirit? But if we were to regard the Spirit as a person to whom we submit, we would pose the question, how can the Holy Spirit have more of me? That is biblical Christianity that recognizes that the Holy Spirit is a person to whom we are called to submit. So the Holy Spirit is a person and the Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit is in union with and equal with the Father and the Son. Now one of the clearest indications of the divinity of the Holy Spirit is given by no less a person than Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 16, we read of Jesus promising his disciples, he's on the eve of his departure, his ascension into heaven, and he's speaking to his disciples and he's wanting to comfort them and encourage them and reassure them. So he makes them a promise. He promises them that after he has ascended into heaven, he will ask the Father to send them another counsellor. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And the fact that the Holy Spirit is divine is given away by the word another. Now the Greeks have two words for another. They have the word alos, which means another, just like the first one. It's like seeing two buses come at the same time. One come Another, exactly the same as the first one. But they have the word as well, heteros, which means totally different. Now Jesus, when he is using the word another counsellor, is very careful to use the word alos, just like the first one. Another counsellor, he says, just like me. Divine, Jesus is saying, just like me. To strengthen and to counsel you, just as I have strengthened and counseled you. And Paul understands this, and he declares the equality and the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in his benedictions. We read this in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. You're familiar with this, I'm sure. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you forevermore. 
Amen. I could have sung that for you, but I spared you. That speaks to us about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit co-equal and divine. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, The Holy Spirit is the key to a vital and truly personal religion. The Holy Spirit is key to a vital and truly personal religion. He is a person, he is divine. He is co-equal with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And John Stott said, just to remind us, that without the Spirit, the church is dead. So, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a divine person. He is a member of the Holy Trinity. He is God. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Second question. What does the Holy Spirit do? If I were to ask you, and I'm being rhetorical here, but if I were to ask you, what is the Holy Spirit's primary work? You might scratch your head and think, well, the giving of gifts, or um, inspiring the writing of Scripture all those years ago, or the nurturing of, of Christ's character, the fruit of the Spirit in us. And we could go through a whole list. Let me tell you what I think the primary work of the Holy Spirit is and feel free to argue the toss afterwards. It's not sanctification or the inspiration of the Bible as important and as wonderful as those works are or the giving of specific gifts for the building up of the church. I believe that the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. And Jesus again makes this clear. He says... The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. And in John 15, Jesus again says, The Spirit will bear witness to me. The primary work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. And I don't know if any of you are into architecture. You appreciate fine buildings. I think that we all do. St. Albans Church in Wickersley is a fine building. We've got a Norman Tower, and we're so proud of it. We've, we floodlighted it every evening. So if you were to pass along, um, well, you just have to come up the Bawtree Road, and you can see the Tower of St. Albans Church floodlit against the night sky. And hopefully you might say, as you catch, it catches your eye, what a lovely building. What a beautiful building. What a majestic building. You might well say that. But I suspect none of you will ever say this. What a lovely floodlight. You would never say that, would you? You wouldn't even notice the floodlight. You would notice the building. The building that is exposed and and illuminated by that floodlight. And so it is with Christ. We notice Christ. We note his, his beauty and his majesty because he is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. And yes, we're conscious of the Holy Spirit. But we're much more conscious of Jesus Christ whom the Holy Spirit illuminates for us because the Holy Spirit his primary purpose, his primary role is to glorify Christ. What a beautiful saviour What a majestic saviour. Any emphasis, therefore, 
on the person and work of the Holy Spirit that detracts from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And from time to time in church circles, this can happen. Any emphasis on the person and work of the Holy Spirit that detracts from the person and work of Jesus Christ is not the Holy Spirit's doing. Rather, it is the spirit of the Antichrist. And the spirit of the Antichrist works to minimise Christ's person, to shift our focus onto other things. The Holy Spirit is important, but the Holy Spirit will never usurp the place of Christ in our thinking. But wherever the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted, you can be sure of this, the Holy Spirit is at work, and we can recognise his presence and be thankful for it. So there we are. That's just by way of introduction. I'm allowed to speak for an hour, by the way. First time, first time I came here and listened to Ian's preach, he spoke for an hour. What does the Holy Spirit do? His primary role is to glorify Christ. But of course, there are other ministries of the Holy Spirit. And let's just go through these as, uh, as quickly as we can. He, the Holy Spirit, is the spirit of new birth and regeneration. In John chapter 3, we read that of that wonderful encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was nobody's fool. Jesus described Nicodemus as Israel's greatest teacher. He was the cleverest man in Israel. And he came to Jesus by night. Perhaps he didn't want people to see that he was speaking to this itinerant rabbi from, from Nazareth. He had a reputation to think about. Perhaps he just wanted some quality time with this extraordinary man, Jesus of Nazareth. He came to Jesus by night. And he started by complimenting Jesus. And Jesus cut to the chase and he said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again of water and the spirit. Nicodemus, if you want to become a Christian, in other words, you have to be born again of the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus, quite understandably, as clever as he was, was confused by this, and he said, what, I have to get back into my mother's womb? How is that going to happen? Jesus went on to explain, but he wasn't talking about a physical rebirth, but a spiritual new birth. When a person comes to that place of repentance, truly recognises their need of a saviour, confesses their sins, God hears that cry of the penitent sinner and sends his Holy Spirit into that person. And they, the Holy Spirit brings that person's dead spirit to life and our spirit as sinners were dead we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people cannot help themselves. And in our helpless state, our merciful Heavenly Father sent His Holy Spirit into us and brought our spirits to life, regenerated us. And so remarkable is that transformation. Jesus Himself likened it to a new birth. Nicodemus, you have to be born again of the Holy Spirit. Just as a child is created by the coming together of a man and a woman. So a new person is created when the Holy Spirit is joined 
with that person's, that penitent sinner's spirit. A new person is created as that person experiences a new birth. Suzanne and I, we went to Keswick a few weeks ago and we took Neil with us. Neil became a Christian last year. He's in his early 30s and he's drinking it in. He was having a fantastic time. I was shattered. But he was full of it. And we were in a, in a bookstore and he came up to me and there's a few people around and he said, Peter, I couldn't help listening to that conversation that the, the two women were having. And there's a woman over there. She described herself as a born-again Christian. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, Aren't all Christians born again? Yeah. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I said to Neil, never describe yourself as a born again Christian. Because it suggests that there are other kinds of Christians. There are no other kinds of Christians. If someone were to ask you, are you a born again Christian? What do you say to them? Is there any other kind? No, there isn't. There isn't any other kind. I heard listening to a phone in a few years ago, and the lady phones in to describe, I'm a born again Christian. And I said, No, 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 don't say that. Because you get people thinking that there are other kinds of Christians. There are no other kinds of Christians. It's like saying baked bread. I mean, that suggests that there are bread that isn't baked. Now, people will describe Bible-believing, faithful Christians as born-again Christians because they want to distinguish us from normal Christians. Normal Christians, when they're athletes, don't believe the Bible, do things that the rest of the world does, affirms everybody in their sin and their sinful lifestyle choices. They are the normal Christians. These born-again Christians, they're odd. They use that in a pejorative sense to smear God's faithful people. Do not play their game. Do not use that phrase, born again Christian. All Christians are born again. We're all born again by the Spirit. I've got that off my chest. Thank you very much for listening to that. I feel better for it. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of new birth and regeneration. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. And, and Ian referred to that in the prayer a little earlier on. We are adopted into God's family. And in our reading from Romans 8, this was made very clear to us. But God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings the sinner, the redeemed, forgiven sinner, into a relationship with him. Now, of course, Paul was writing to Christians in Rome. And the Christians in Rome, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, would have understood the fact that Roman fathers could appoint a natural or an adopted son as their heir. That's a bit mean, isn't it? Say you're the natural son of a Roman father. And you're the oldest son, and you think you're coming up for an inheritance. And suddenly he says, well, actually, I'm, I'm, you're not my heir. I've adopted son, so he's going to be my heir. That would have been a blow. And, and the people in, in Rome, the Christians to whom Paul was writing, would have understood that the Roman father had that choice. Can I just say about um, 
sons. You know, God has only one son, Jesus, and he has many adopted sons. Can I say something to you ladies? Don't be afraid of the word son when it appears in the Bible in this context. Because it speaks not about men. It speaks about men and women who are heirs. You shouldn't be worried about being referred to as sons. And I shouldn't be worried about being referred to as part of the bride of Christ. It shouldn't bother me at all. Because son and bride are powerful, lovely metaphors to describe the relationship of men and women to God through, through their relationship with Christ. That is what it is. So don't be, ca- be careful. I'm all for inclusive language. But when it comes to words like this, we need to be careful because we kick out the meaning. And the meaning is inheritance. Sons in the ancient world were the children and the heirs of the Father. And that is what we are. As God's children, we are children and heirs. Whether we are men or women, we are the sons of God. So, as well, by the Holy Spirit, we can cry, Abba, Father. We come into this deep relationship with God, we are made heirs of God, and we cry that wonderful title, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an intimate title of deep respect and love. We don't have the equivalent of that title in our culture and language. Daddy comes nowhere near it. That is too familiar a word. Abba has has an intimacy, but at the same time a profound respect. Roman children understood that their fathers had the power of life and death over them. If they saw fit, they could kill their children. The law allowed that to happen. They had the power of life and death over their children. But at the same time, Roman children knew, in most instances, that their fathers loved them. So they held in tension these these two truths, that the father had this power of life and death over them, and that the father loved them. God is our all-powerful heavenly father, and he loves us unconditionally. And we are able to cry by the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit gives us the deepest possible experience of God. We read in Romans 8 verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. God the Father wants us to know that we are his children. And the Holy Spirit witnesses to that wonderful truth. I have two adopted cousins, not by me, but my cousins have adopted Rebecca and Peter. They're well into their 30s now and have got their own families. But I remember visiting them in their home near Blackpool when they were youngish children. And I asked them, uh, Rebecca, Peter, are you Welsh or are you English? Now, their adopted parents are Welsh. So I thought I'd ask them, are you Welsh or are you English? And they said, English. A few years later, I went back, and they were a little bit older, of course, and I asked them the question. Are you, are you? Well, I didn't ask them the question, actually. Peter said to me, I want to show you something. I said, okay, show me. So he took me up to his bedroom, he drew back his wardrobe drawer, and there, neatly hanging in his wardrobe, were a series of replica Swansea City football shirts. Now, Peter was born on Merseyside, so I said to him, Peter, What's this about? Why do you support Swansea City? You, you could have supported Everton or, or, or Liverpool 
why are you supporting Swansea City? And he replied, it's my dad's team. Fine. So I came out of his bedroom and I glanced at Rebecca's bedroom door and she cut a headline out of a newspaper and stuck it to the door. And the headline read, Young, Welsh and Gifted. And I thought to myself, they changed. They've changed their minds. They've changed their identity. They've now decided who they are. They've decided that they're their adoptive parents' children. And their adoptive parents are Welsh. Therefore, they've concluded they must be Welsh. Why did they change their minds? Well, I'll tell you why they changed their minds. Because their adoptive parents had witnessed to them every day of their young lives that they loved them. They loved them unconditionally and they loved them more than they can say. And gradually the penny dropped. They didn't just feel loved, they knew that they were loved and that they belonged to their adoptive parents as if they were their birth parents. And if their adoptive parents are Welsh, then we must be Welsh as well. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit witnesses to our spirits. Tells us who we are. We are our Father's children. We belong to our Heavenly Father. We are loved by Him. So, if ever you want to know why people choose to be Welsh, now you know. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of revelation and teaching. Spending time with the Lord deepens our relationship with him. And the Holy Spirit helps this deepening by bringing us into the presence of our Heavenly Father. Ephesians 2 verse 18. For through Jesus we have access to the Father by the Spirit. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father is deepened because the Holy Spirit brings us near to the Father. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray. And this has to be our most important activity. The Holy Spirit enlivens our praying. Sometimes it's hard to pray, isn't it? Who finds it hard to pray sometimes? We do. We so need the Holy Spirit to help us to pray. And we know when we've prayed in the Spirit, don't we? We know when we've prayed in the Spirit. We've touched that throne of grace. God's Spirit has taken us into the, the Father's presence and has deepened our relationship with Him. The Spirit helps us to pray and the Spirit helps us to understand the Bible. Ephesians 1.17 talks about the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. The Spirit interprets the Bible to us. Some years ago I visited Argentina. The Diocese of Sheffield has a, a link with the, uh, the Diocese of Argentina. And uh, I didn't expect to have to preach, but I was told I was preaching one Sunday. So I, I, and he said, oh, by the way, um, half the congregation only speaks Spanish. I said, well, fantastic. 
And, but don't worry, you will have a translator. And so, fine. So how long should I speak for? Well, given the fact that uh, there will be a translator, and let's say we don't want the, the sermon to be more than 20 minutes long, can you arrange to speak for, for 10 minutes? And I said, okay. So I, I, I homed down my sermon, reduced it down to, to 10 minutes, stood up and, and preached. I said a sentence, and it was translated. I said another sentence, and it was translated. And 45 minutes later, I sat down. What an interpreter. For every word I spoke, he said ten. Interpreter, and I'm wondering actually what he actually did say. When the Holy Spirit interprets the Bible to us, we can be sure that he is interpreting, conveying to us exactly what God wants us to hear. When we spend time studying the Bible in the presence of the Holy Spirit we receive nothing but the truth the whole truth of God he is the greatest interpreter of all he reveals the Bible to us he helps us to understand scripture and he helps us to pray he is the spirit of revelation and teaching how am I doing? how long have I got? because there's loads more Let's see how we go. He's the spirit of sanctification. The spirit transforms us into the moral likeness of Christ. We're so familiar, aren't we, with Galatians chapter 5 and the list of the fruits of the spirit. Let's go. We'll start with love. Love. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. I had to read them. I do love joy, peace, kindness, and I stop at goodness. It's worth remembering them. Just to remind us of the, the attributes of Christ that the Holy Spirit is so keen to nurture in us. We will never be perfect this side of heaven. But we can certainly be on the road to perfection. Because the Holy Spirit will be working in us to change, to change us into the likeness of Christ so that we will reflect his character. And he does change us. He, he does change us. I have a friend um, who is a very honest man and he said that you know, he'd become a Christian and his wife had become a Christian and his wife was as generous as she'd ever been and he said, and I was as mean as I'd ever been. And he, he said, when people come around and post these charity envelopes through the door, he said, I, my, my wife, Pam, she'd pick them up and she'd stuff it full of money and she'd put it by the door for it to be collected. And after she disappeared, he said, I'd come along. I'd open it and take some of the money up. And he said, I would do it with a clear conscience. He said, I was so mean. He said, and then one day, I was convicted. God, the Lord, convicted me of my meanness. I began to realize that being a Christian and being mean is not, are not compatible. God's people are to be generous. They are to be loving. And basically, Richard was saying, I, I was transformed almost in an instant by the work of the Holy Spirit. He nurtured in me love for those who are in need. And I am much more generous now. 
The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, makes us like Christ. He is the Spirit of sanctification. He is the Spirit of unity. The same Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian. Wherever they are, regardless of denomination, background, colour or race. Ephesians chapter 4. We are of one body. There is one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And to use the the banner headline that that adorns the marquee at the Keswick Convention, we are one in Christ. And God desires uh, for us to, to maintain and reveal that oneness, that unity, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And one way of maintaining that unity and celebrating that unity is to show solidarity with Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering. And boy, is the church suffering at the moment, not least in certain Muslim countries. The Archbishop of York this morning, uh, John uh, Sentimu, actually used the word genocide to refer to what might happen to Christians and other minorities in the Islamic State that uh, encompasses Iraq and Syria. I hope we're praying for these people and supporting them in other ways. I commend to you the work of the Barnabas Fund. We're united one with another in Christ. We are united by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of unity, who is the Spirit of gifting and equipping. The Spirit endows God's children with a variety of gifts and abilities. We read in 1 Corinthians 12 that there is such gifts as evangelism. Like Richard, he had the gift of evangelism. I became a Christian because of that gift. There are evangelists and there are pastors. In Ephesians 4 we read about serving, encouraging and, and giving leadership. And all of these lists are not intended to be exhaustible. There are all kinds of other gifts that aren't mentioned in Scripture. Natural talents that can be transformed by the Holy Spirit and we should use them. There is a catch-all gift, isn't there, which we read of in Romans 12. This is called the, the gift of serving. What's the gift of serving? Well, it's when you serve. That's a gift. I have a brother who said to me one day, he's an older brother, he said, Peter, I wish I could do what you do. He's a Christian. I wish I could do what you do. Um, I wish I could stand up in front of people and speak like you. And I thought, what? My brother is a vehicle mechanic. He can strip down a vehicle and and lay it out on the floor. And then he can put it back together together so it purrs. If I were to strip down a vehicle and put it back together again, it would never, ever work again. And I said to him, David, you have an extraordinary gift. It's not listed in the Bible. But you and I both know that you have this extraordinary talent for repairing and maintaining motor vehicles. I wish I had your gift. I wish I had your gift. We couldn't swap. It's not the sort of thing you do a trade on. We're stuck with our gifts. We have to celebrate our gifts. And we have to use our gifts to the Lord's glory. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of gifting and equipping and is the Spirit of evangelism and we're coming to an end. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to witness to Christ so that we might win souls for Christ. 
In Acts chapter 1 verse 8 we read, Jesus speaking to his disciples, again shortly before he ascended into heaven, preparing them for the day of Pentecost. He says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that promise was fulfilled a short while later on the day of Pentecost. The disciples who had been cowering, hiding from the, the Jewish leaders who had killed their Lord and were searching for them. Those, those same disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, so much so that they went into the marketplace as if to say, if you want us, come and get us. That's how bold they were. And they stood up, Peter stood up, and he spoke and he proclaimed the truths about Jesus Christ. And on that day of Pentecost, 3,000 people became Christians. What an extraordinary day. What a wonderful example of the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. Can that ever happen again? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones thinks it can because he talks about, in his book, Joy Unspeakable, the ordinary work and the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. There is the routine and ordinary work of the Holy Spirit, which is the experience of most uh, Christians most of the time. And then there are the occasional extraordinary events brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. And he uses, I think, a very helpful analogy. He says, uh, imagine that you're standing at the bus stop and it begins to rain. It's just a light drizzle. Not, not too heavy. And you're thinking, well, the bus won't be long. But you can be sure as eggs are eggs. Because it's raining, the bus is delayed. There's no shelter. You don't have a coat. You don't have a brolly. You're standing there in the drizzle for a reasonable long period of time. What happens? You get soaked to the bone. There's no getting away from it. It's like drizzle. But if you're out there in the rain for a long period of time, you will get soaked. Compare that to an occasion where you're you're just walking down the street. Suddenly there is a cloudburst, a heavy downpour. You're only out for a minute before you manage to find shelter. But in that time, you're absolutely soaked. What's the difference between the two? There is no difference. Whether you're out in the drizzle for a long period of time, or whether you're caught in a, a heavy downpour, you're absolutely soaked. And Martin Lloyd-Jones helpfully compares being caught out in the drizzle for a long period of time as the routine work of the Holy Spirit. Day by day, we should be receiving afresh the Holy Spirit in a routine kind of way. But from time to time in the life of the church, there have been those extraordinary downpours. I come from Wales, which is still called the land of revivals, even though we haven't had a revival for 110 years. But as you read the accounts of the revivals in Wales and in other places in our country and across the world, you will notice that from time to time, God by works, by his Holy Spirit, in an extraordinary way. The important thing is, whether it's ordinary or extraordinary, the important thing is to get soaked. Get soaked. Be soaked in the Spirit, which is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 18. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Get soaked with the Holy Spirit. 
And he's using the present continuous tense. Keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-off and a once and for all experience. It is an experience that we experience every day. Every day. And that Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that fills us, that soaks us, is the same Holy Spirit that empowers us for worship, for service, and for testimony. Keep on being filled. Believe and trust in the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. So I'm going to end by asking you just a couple of questions. Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you being equipped and empowered to serve your Lord Jesus? Are you being drawn into a deeper relationship with your Saviour? Are you exhibiting the moral character of Christ through the ongoing nurture of the Holy Spirit? That's the question for the Christians here. But for those of you who don't know the Lord Jesus, let me put this, ask you this. Have you been born again by the Holy Spirit? Have you acknowledged your need of a Saviour and through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ appropriated all the benefits of Christ's death and his resurrection. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He came alive again, alive again to win you eternal life. Have you appropriated all the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? Have you allowed the spirit of adoption to witness to your spirit, to reassure you that you are a child of God and that you might cry, Abba, Father? If you haven't, then allow the Lord Jesus, who is the giver of life, to breathe into you today, to breathe his breath into you today. Let's affirm our faith in God the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. And as we affirm our faith, let's rejoice that through the work of the Holy Spirit, Christ, our Saviour, is glorified in us. Let's pray.